0: We were trying to teach an agent using a robotic hand to pick things up. Just a simple reach and grasp problem like I'm doing with this glass of beer. When the glass got far enough above the table, say 10 centimeters, then it would get a reward. And we hoped that just from that sparse reward signal, that it would learn how to pick up the glass. It was a block actually that it was trying to pick up. But what it actually learned when we came back in the morning and saw the results of the experiment was it had learned to simply flick the ball high into the air, <laughs> out of reach, and not at all the solution that we wanted. So it's almost <laughs>
1: about how you. Do. It, it kind of finds flaws in the way you've defined the task almost, exactly. doesn't it? It's super exactly. clever. It, it works out <laughs> like how to a, get around your lack of child. clarity. <laughs> yeah, like a clever yeah. child. Exactly. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this final instalment of the Plant of Science Podcast Series 1. It's been a pretty spectacular ride in which Jim and I have travelled the length and breadth of the UK in search of wisdom, knowledge and a nice cosy pub. Don't despair the podcast is ending though. Rejoice, because today marks the beginning of Pint of Science Festival 2019. That is
2: absolutely right. Our events are about to kick off all over the country with pubs and cafes hosting amazing talks from fascinating researchers covering every possible kind of science you can think of. Make your way to pintofscience.co.uk to view our entire programme or pintofscience.com if you're listening from further afield.
1: Now, today's episode, we were lucky enough to catch up with Dr. Raya Hadsell. Raya is a senior research scientist with world-renowned artificial intelligence research company DeepMind, who described their mission as being to push the boundaries of AI developing programs that can learn to solve a complex problem without needing to be taught how. Artificial intelligence is an increasingly important part of all of our lives, and whatever your feelings on it, it's likely it will be affecting more and more parts of our lives over the next few decades. So we were pretty chuffed that Raya was up for a chat.
2: Originally from California, Raya's undergraduate degree was in religion and philosophy, but she made the transition to computer science at PhD level with a thesis entitled Learning Long-Range Vision for Off-Road Robots, which is pretty darn cool. She worked as a postdoc at Carnegie Mellon University and as a research scientist at SRI International, both in the US, before moving to London in 2014 to join the DeepMind team.
1: As a research area fraught with science fiction myths, not to mention quite a few anxieties around job security and the rise of the machines, we decided. to use today to demystify the subject and get a better insight into what day-to-day AI research actually looks like for those carrying it out. We'll be back to chat a little more about our podcast adventures after today's episode but for now enjoy the final episode of series one of the Pint of Science podcast.
2: This podcast is made possible with help from our sponsors Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and then explaining the science behind them.
1: Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering, or computer science.
2: So if you're inspired by what you hear today and want to learn a little of the science behind it yourself, check out Brilliant.org or download the app. There's a link in the description and the first 200 people to subscribe will get 20% off their premium plan.
1: Let's start by getting our audience up to speed on what is DeepMind.
0: So artificial intelligence is a term that's been thrown around for many decades, since Marvin Minsky first started thinking about this and others back in the 60s, really. And AI was meant to be any computer program that could sort of emulate some of the decision processes of a human. That resulted in a lot of products that were very specific more sort of expert decision systems that would for instance run your dishwasher and make it be more efficient now we're starting to think about how can we automate that entire process of coming up with a solution and make it more general so that there's one algorithm that can be deployed in lots of different problems and come up with a solution so much more general in the same way that biological intelligence is general Uh (laughs) learn how to optimize whether you're an octopus in the sea or a fish or an insect or a human we try to learn and optimize for that environment so that's a little bit more what artificial general intelligence is supposed to be deepmind is a it was a startup company back pre 2014 and then it was acquired by google and it's now part of the alphabet sort of umbrella of different companies so we work a lot with google but we're separate from google We act a lot as an independent research institute. We do a lot of blue skies research, specifically trying to solve the problem of intelligence and figure out new problems to solve once we have figured out intelligence.
1: So the majority of staff there are research staff?
0: I mean, we have almost a thousand people now, uh, just at DeepMind, and I would say that we're about half core researchers, research scientists, research engineers, And then half are a little bit more applied in different areas, working on different products.
2: Um, And does what you do, does that feed into other Google products?
0: So some of the applied group works with other Google groups and problems with, I don't know, YouTube recommendations, things like this, Um, thinking about data center optimization. The work that I do is really just in fundamental research. So
1: on their website, DeepMind describes the company as a world leader in AI research and its application for positive impact. How does the company kind of measure whether they're having this positive impact?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, what's the metric for that? Um, I don't think we have any clear metric. It's a little bit of we know it when we see it and we hope that the rest of the world agrees with us. But. We really would like to solve new big problems that the world acknowledges you know, need to be solved and that we don't have good solutions for. So things like some of the incurable diseases that are out there. Uh, we really see artificial general intelligence as being a really powerful tool that could help with curing some diseases at least, modeling the climate in new ways. Work that we've done recently has been on how Google data centers optimize their use of power and cooling Mm -hmm. to bring down that energy bill which helps Google in terms of their wallet and it also helps the world in terms of not creating more heat. (laughs) I suppose
1: if you can roll that out across more than just Google as well then you've got a potentially massive solution there. So DeepMind's higher profile kind of research projects and one of the ones I think I probably came to know them for was AlphaGo. So this is the first a computer program to defeat a professional human Go player. First of all, what actually is Go? And why why use Go instead of like, I suppose chess was the the famous one that springs yeah. to mind. Why, why is Go <laughs> a superior choice?
0: Well, it's just a lot harder. So Go is an ancient game and I am not the expert in this area. <laughs> so I will just say that it is centuries, if not millennia old, simple game involving putting down black or white stones and trying to capture territory. And the interesting thing there is that there are two people playing back and forth. If there's just one person playing, if you tried to play Go Solitaire, it would be really easy. You would just sort of capture all of the territory and be done. But because there's two players, then there is this uh, very complex strategy that happens. um, And it's a very open game in that you can play anywhere you want on this big board. It's 19 by 19 squares and that creates this explosion of possible futures of different ways that the game can go and i don't have at hand the relevant comparison uh the intuitive example of that it's however many grains of if you took each grain of sand on the earth and that was its own world then (laughs) right (laughs) it's something like it's complicated um larger than the number of uh, atoms in the universe I believe Right. right. in terms of the number (laughs) of of possible game ways that the game can be played so it's really hard to come up with a solution if you're writing a computer program Um, and the same thing exists chess is hard to sort of automate hard to to win with a computer program for some of the same reasons but go is just much more extreme okay and so we approached this instead of starting with rules and sort of trying to program in what does a go player think about. Instead, we just learned the whole thing from scratch, using this AGI approach of having a neural network um, that learns directly from the data that it sees and the experience of playing the game.
2: And you ended up beating the human.
0: Yes. And and so we worked on this team led by Dave Silver at DeepMind, worked on this for for years, and then eventually said, okay, we're ready to (laughs) try to beat the best player and best go player in the world and so we went to South Korea and played against Lee Seedol and, uh, and, and won a match of five. Was, years was this
1: made like a kind of broadcasted thing for all the DeepMind staff where you all sat there watching this kind of <laughs> moment of truth? Or
0: At four in the morning, yes, wow. UK <laughs> okay, time. So those of us that were still in London for this, uh, we came into work, a lot of us came into work um, at, in, in the middle of the night because that's when it was being played in, in Korea and we watched the game and we came into work because if we came into work, we could see sort of the dashboard of what AlphaGo was, was thinking, um, what so its expectations it. were. Uh. So we got to see a little bit more information and it was quite edge of the seat. Um, <laughs> That's so cool. Very, very exciting.
1: Yeah, they're watching the computer like sweating back <laughs> yeah, in the office yeah. like, oh,
0: this guy's really good.
1: <laughs> so what exactly does an AI look like when you're viewing it on a screen then?
0: Nowhere near as exciting as in the movies, unfortunately. <laughs> um, it really looks like a set of just graphs, of plots over time, um, which reflect the AI's expectation of winning, what it thinks its own probability of winning or losing are at, at, any, at any point. And also we see its predictions for what its opponent is going to play next. So we get to say, ah, it thinks that the best move for Lee Sedol is to play there. And then we see where Lee Sedol actually plays. So you sort of get an idea as to how well does AlphaGo understand Lee Sedol in that game, correctly predicting, which of course is a huge part of doing well in Go or chess related games. And then also just how well it thinks it was doing. So when we saw it start to take a nosedive in one game that Lee Sedol actually ended up winning, we knew that there was something going wrong and, and indeed it lost it, it. lost its confidence
1: oh, no. oh. it's so crazy to think that's <laughs> probably how like a human brain also could look If you graphically <laughs> represented it that's probably Lee Seadal's brain <laughs> yeah. oh, mine
2: would definitely start at zero and stay there I'm <laughs> not sure <about> that. <laughs>
1: So um, a follow-up kind of success story after AlphaGo then, and I know this isn't your area, so we'll we'll move through it r- relatively fast, but AlphaGo Zero was this, the kind of follow-up project that was even more of a big deal. Why why was AlphaGo Zero a bigger deal?
0: Well, there was AlphaGo Zero, and then there was actually AlphaZero, and they were both exciting because they removed some of the assumptions, they removed some of the engineering elements, and they made it into a more of a pure learning algorithm. So the initial AlphaGo started its learning process by watching a lot of expert games, a lot of human games of Go played and just as an observer watched these games going back and forth and learned from that how to predict what was being played and what a good next move was. With AlphaGo Zero we took that away and it learned directly through experience from the beginning. And with Alpha Zero, we took away anything that was specific to Go at all. We used exactly the same algorithm, pretty much exactly the same code, uh, to become superhuman at chess and a game called Shogi as well.
1: Oh, wow, okay. So, in terms of a non expert, then (laughs) Alpha Go Zero is a kind of watches lots of games of Go be played, learns from them, then becomes very, very good at Go. So so that's just AlphaGo. AlphaGo Zero does it by playing against what, itself?
0: Just by itself, playing, no. Kate, self-playing.
1: Self-playing and becomes incredible. And then Alpha Zero, and this is the one I'm finding the hardest <laughs> to get my head around. H- how did that then become great at three games using the same algorithm?
0: So that just took away anything that was sort of hard-coded in that was specific to Go. Okay. And it just made it more general so that it was... There's sort of a a list of things in in, in the paper, but things that were specific in terms of how the game starts, how many different moves you can can take, um, things like this, and made it just more general, more generally applicable. We always said that Deep Blue was the sort of AI that IBM used Mm -hmm. to beat chess champions but it was very specific it was completely designed and engineered and every part of it was written in order to play chess right right? and that same algorithm could not learn to play knots and crosses right and so that's what we mean by sort of a limited ai versus something that is general something that is general should be able to learn to play any of these games well and you know get as well as it do as well as it can
1: so i I spotted on the the DeepMind website when I was uh, researching this episode, actually, that uh, one of the uh, recent pieces of news is that they've just d- developed Alpha Star. So this is a project which, it's an AI that can master the real-time strategy game StarCraft 2, which I have played. And <laughs> nice. it's quite quite complicated, quite hard to, to be good at. So first of all, is this one of these specific builds? Was that, or is this a general algorithm that's been applied to StarCraft 2?
0: Uh, a little bit of both. Definitely we took a lot of a lot of inspiration from the algorithms that were used in Alpha Zero in developing the Alpha Star in developing the uh, Starcraft player, but this agent is different. It needs to instead of looking at sort of the positions of pieces on a board, it needs to look at the Starcraft you know information, which is just this screen of um, figures moving around over time. It's more of looking at a video game.
1: Right? And is that is that harder so or easier they, than looking at Go? It's harder,
0: and it's also hard. Probably the most important difference is that it's incomplete information. So in in Go and in chess, when you look down at the board, you see the whole thing. It's all there with, uh, you know. there's no uncertainty as to where one of those pieces are. You know exactly where they are. You know the full state of the game. StarCraft is what we would call a partial information game. So you only can see part of it. You can't see everything that's going on across the whole board at once you can only see where you're looking.
1: Okay, right? so yeah. And
0: plus there's this fog of war, so you can't yeah. see some parts of the, of, of the board. So you're trying, you're operating, and you're making decisions from a position of uncertainty, fundamentally. And which we, humans are comfortable with, but <laughs> yeah. AIs have a harder time
2: with. With Go or Chess, there's a definite end point. Whereas StarCraft, I'm not. Is that is that open ended? I've, I've never played it, so I don't know. There is like a big condition. You, oh, there Somebody, is a uh, somebody okay.
0: says good game, and it's done. Okay, <laughs> okay, that's cool.
2: Because. Uh, so cause I'm guessing doing it for an open world thing where there isn't any sort of goal to work towards. that
0: That's another problem. If you don't know what you're going to optimize, then how do you ever learn? So yeah. in a world where you're doing exploration, I think about Minecraft when you're in creative mode. I ask yeah. my son, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. I'm uh, building the largest yeah. volcano that I can. You know? <laughs> Our algorithms would, would actually have a very hard time doing anything productive or interesting in that sort of an open world world where there's not a clear objective. In StarCraft, you've got a winner and a loser at the okay. end of the day. So we can try to maximize the chance that yeah. <laughs> the agent is going, to, is going to win. But it's a hard learning process. So it is still a general algorithm, but it is different from AlphaZero in certain ways. I just had
1: my first tangent alarm go off when you said about creativity and like a purpose (laughs) it got me thinking about i I know that there's art that has been generated by ai before at Mm -hmm. least like very impressive pictures that are developed completely from no human starting point but i guess in that circumstance the computer's still being given an objective even though arguably art is about being creative for the sake of creativity and i'm sure lots of people will disagree with me on various (laughs) parts of that but how do, how do you program an AI to produce something that's pure creative then?
0: Yeah, it's, it's really hard to do. So there's algorithms you can use that try to mimic curiosity, and that will result in more exploration of a world like Minecraft in creative mode, where you're trying to find things that surprise you. And every time you find something that surprises you that you didn't predict, the, uh, the AI <laughs> yeah. agent that's in the game, every time it has something happen that it didn't predict, then it will be surprised, and that gives it a little bonus. So it gets a little happy happy little uh, bonus for finding anything that surprises it. And so that means you're going to naturally try to seek out new areas. I already already know what's going to happen here. I know what's going to happen if I interact with this part of the game. So I'm going to try going over here and pushing this button, or stacking this block, or doing whatever whatever you do. Those are not as well developed in terms of algorithms as just learning to maximize uh, an objective, like, a win rate.
1: Yeah, are you like a gamer outside of work? <laughs> Is this something that you've come to as a researcher? You've suddenly <laughs> found yourself interested in video games? Or? I'm
0: not. I'm not a gamer. Although I've I've played Starcraft too. Uh oh, well, I, yeah, I, I, I decided it was important for you know background <laughs> uh, research purposes. That's why um, I play my, all my video games.
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Same for me. <laughs>
0: and I am a puzzler. I, I've always done puzzles. Okay. Uh, my parents. Won a brand new car by doing puzzles as a <laughs> no. family competition, uh, some a national national puzzle competition in the U.S. When I was about ten years old, I thought that was pretty, like crossword-style cool.
1: puzzles, or it was
0: a bunch of different categories of puzzles, from word puzzles to more complex things. Some of them were on were in computer games, some of them were not, but logic puzzles, word puzzles, yeah, okay, Just okay. different nice. types of puzzles, and
1: I see. Because we are both quite yeah. geeky gamers <laughs> yeah, yeah. deep down Into and video games. we've, um, I mean, from my perspective as a human, not particularly skilled video gamer, games were hard when I was 10 and they're still quite <laughs> hard now, but presumably the artificial intelligence going on behind the scenes in the gaming world has actually come really quite a long way.
0: I mean, I think that it has interestingly, some, a lot of these ideas about uh, agents Learning within a game existed quite a while ago. The founder of DeepMind is Demis Hassabis. He was originally started a gaming company and he developed a game called Black and White where you interact with the game and the way in which you interact with it drives what happens in the game. Every, everything else is driven by that interaction, that feedback loop that happens between okay. you and the game. Um, so the game evolves because of how you treat it, okay. sort of like a dog that you would, you know, treat, give treats and treat well or treat poorly. And I do play Subnautica that would be the All right, okay. game. <laughs> you guys know that game? I actually I don't, don't know, know that, that one. one. Oh my gosh, I don't know. oh my gosh, Subnautica so, so, okay. is amazing.
1: Uh, <laughs> I could go okay, off on, a, on the list. a massive tangent about video games, but <laughs> <laughs> being as you're not a gamer outside of work, we'll, we'll
2: avoid that. That's true, I'm not sure my girlfriend needs me to find another one to, <laughs> to get the <obsessed> with. Let's <laughs> think about the puzzles and stuff. Is that what sort of pulled you into the computer sciences?
0: It is, I would say. I mean, my parents very much told me to maximize for that curiosity reward. They said, go find the thing. <laughs> Go out into the world, go to college, find the thing that you know least about that is the most interesting to you and learn about that. And I ended up with a degree in philosophy and religion, which (laughs) I'm not sure they actually could have predicted. And then I was actually starting my graduate studies in philosophy and I said, wait a minute, this is still interesting, but I'm not curious enough that I want to spend a career in, in the world of philosophy. And so I sort of retreated back to things that I knew that I was good at, like solving puzzles Um, thinking creatively and I learned how to, to code. I took a class in Java back in the early 2000s and then got hooked, got a degree in computer science, went and did a PhD in computer science Happened to do the PhD with Jan LeCun, who just received the Turing Award, or one third of a Turing Award, for his work in sort of fundamental computer science and AI. So I learned a lot about neural networks, and then the deep learning revolution happened, and a lot of people became really excited in neural networks, deep learning, uh, these topics.
1: Was it a master's degree you got in computer science when you made that transition from philosophy to your PhD? Yeah, well,
0: I spent the rest of that year of Philosophy study, actually taking computer science classes <laughs> and math classes, and then I did a master's. Okay. And then from there, I did a PhD. I think that's probably quite
1: inspirational for a lot of people who finish their undergrad degrees and have that panic of like, this, yeah. <laughs> I, like I enjoyed that, but I'm not sure I want it to be my degree. And
0: I think that's great. I think that doing your undergraduate degree should be all about learning to critically read, critically think, uh, be creative, be a problem solver. These things, those apply in, in just about any field you you can think of and it's very easy to catch up on skills that you don't have once you're really motivated. Oh, okay, (laughs) now I know why I want to learn this.
1: People have to choose stuff so young as well, don't they, that's the thing. Sometimes it takes a degree to be like, it's like you say, you you study your philosophy and we're like, this is still really cool, but actually now I'm a bit older and can see like a career, is that what I want? I feel people have to make very big decisions at a very young age, it's it's kind of crazy.
2: From religion and philosophy to computer science is quite a, a jump. But do you use any of the the philosophy and the religion? Does it come into your your research in any way?
0: It doesn't. I occasionally, it, uh, for the most part, no. Um, I occasionally read a book on AI or AI ethics that's grounded ethics. more on the on the philosophy side, yeah. and I'm happy that like, oh, okay, I can understand the way this argument is progressing. I see it as always helpful if people have a diversity of backgrounds when they get to the point of trying to solve larger problems, I think that that diversity of experience is always uh, relevant and, and helpful.
1: You are going to have more and more of these ethical questions cropping up. As as we can use AI for more and more things, I suppose, uh, it will surely be useful to be able to engage with that. If you're doing it purely on a victory condition <laughs> of like <laughs> AI research must progress, you could lose sight of some of those more scary areas where AI could come into play, I suppose. so. Do you think your philosophy degree might become more useful you know, further down the line? You can engage with those debates a bit more, the concerns the public have about AI?
0: I mean, in my position as a research scientist, I, I, I do fun, fundamental research. I'm not, you know, I'd rather leave the AI ethics, you know, for the most part to the people who did a whole PhD in AI ethics or, you know, ethics and technology, <laughs> things like this. I don't feel like I'm the expert in sure. this field. I do think it's important to think about ethics and to think about the implications of the work that we're doing and be prepared to engage with that. Okay. It's just, we have a group at DeepMind called De- DeepMind Ethics and Society and they are really actively thinking ahead and thinking about areas like Fairness and like bias and yeah. these sort of important subjects. I think it's really important. Um, it's just not my my area <laughs> of research. Is the well, it's there. It's kind of, of cool to know so. there is
1: a whole department. I suppose I would maybe assume before you said that that it was implicit within your role that everyone was thinking about there. But yeah, now you say it's obvious there'll be a department kind of dedicated <laughs> <Yeah>. to that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, from the beginning, when Google wanted to acquire DeepMind. DeepMind said that one of their conditions for being acquired by Google is that there be an independent ethical board Okay, uh, that's cool. yeah. that would review things. And Google said, oh, you know, you're know, you really serious about this, aren't you?
3: They <laughs> <laughs> said, yeah, yeah. A-
0: AI is something that we do think will be developed and will bring a lot of questions with it as the tools get more powerful. How are they used? What are the types of guarantees and, and promises that we need to make? And how do we ensure that those are followed? And
1: how do you find working at DeepMind then? Just as a kind of day-to-day job, is it a fun place to work, cool offices?
0: Google's known, I think, for being the best employer in in the world by Uh, whatever rating uh, pretty consistently and for, for good reason. I mean, they're a really good employer. I enjoy my job because I have a lot of freedom in terms of the subjects that I want to research and work with a great team of people. It's creative, it's fun, it's uh, challenging.
2: We covered AlphaGo and we looked at A-ethics, neither of which are your actual area. Ne- your actual, that's, is that neural networks?
0: Neural networks, in particular, deep reinforcement learning. So deep reinforcement learning is when we bring together neural networks, artificial neural networks. Just think about it as a computer program where you get some input and then you have a lot of mathematical transformations of that input, and then you have an output. So it's just a big complex function with an input and an output. And based on how good or bad that output is, in terms of whether or not it's an error or not, then you can change all of the parts of that function. So those would be all of the individual neurons. And in the neural networks that we use, they can have a million neurons. So there's a very large number of their connections that are being adapted and changed based on the actual input and output of the network. When we talk about deep reinforcement learning, we're talking about using a neural network and the output that it creates is an action in the world. So you can think about this. I I like the video game example. Um, If we want to train a neural network to play for instance, Pong, which is an old video game where all you have to do is (laughs) is move a paddle uh, left or right in order to hit a pole. And so the input to the neural network is the pixels on the screen, is what it looks like. The same thing that you or I would look at on the screen. And the output is an action that says move left, move right, or stay in the same position. So you see the pixels on the screen, you Propagate that information through this complex function, which is the neural network, and the output comes and it says move left. So you move the paddle left by sending that signal to the joystick, and eventually something happens in the game. Either you lose a point or you gain a point, uh, you end the game altogether, and you send back either a positive or a negative feedback signal through the network. And so you're just trying to get better and better at the game. So you use the winning or losing or the points in the game that you get as a, as a reward, and you keep on trying to get better. So you want to increase that reward. And if you simply do this, you start out with that neural network producing random outputs. Go left, go right, go right, go right, go right, <laughs> go left, 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 left. And it's not meaningful. It's just random actions. But eventually, it starts to get data from that. And that data, those, those results, sometimes I get a lucky hit on the ball, and it works. And it learns from that and gets better and what we see is that within about an hour of this neural network and this uh, reinforcement learning playing the game of pong then it gets good enough so that its actions are almost always optimal right. and it can win against the the computer in this case
1: so this is a bit similar to before when you were saying about your uh, agent exploring your, your kind of curiosity AI, That's uh, in that situation, you've got a little agent exploring, and every time it discovers something novel, it gets its little right. beep of that's that's a good thing, that's right. its positive reinforcement. Is that the same thing? That's deep reinforcement learning, but encouraging a kind of
0: encouraging curiosity. curiosity. Right, where now the rewards are coming because of surprises, because yes. uh, of things that were predicted that came out differently. Um, and as opposed to that, in the simpler case of just trying to get a better score on Pong, the initial exploration is just random and then that positive reinforcement comes returning from, getting the ball. A, from returning the ball. <laughs> go, go. So that's, that's where my research has been for the last five years is in developing new algorithms and new ways in which we use these algorithms and sort of exploring what happens when we use these types of algorithms in different types of, of domains. Is
1: there still a focus on robotics and navigation or is that something you left behind at the kind of no, earlier stages of your career?
0: No, I, I, so I worked on robotics and navigation during my PhD, and then I. It, it's hard to set down a puzzle once you've you know, <laughs> really gotten, gotten into it. So I still work on robotics and navigation and continual learning. Those are sort of the three areas of research.
1: And how, do you, how does one use then deep neural networks and deep reinforcement learning? If we're talking about navigation and mobility, which I think is what your, your original thesis was actually literally on off-road robots essentially wasn't it and how they navigate in these complicated yeah. environments yeah. so sort of what's an application of deep reinforcement learning in robot navigation?
0: Navigation's a really fun problem I mean if you can look at the whole world from up above and see the whole thing make it fully observed so would say then it's not hard to plan a path from where you are to where you want to get to so over to St. Pancras right to catch a train um, but we don't navigate that way. We just see the world in front of us. We Just see the world in front of us, we don't get to see the whole thing. Um, And so that means that when we move through the world, we have to explore, we have to use our memory, and then we need to do planning. And so doing all of these things, training an agent to do these things, is 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 very interesting so we developed some of these different environments one that looks like a computer game but you're down in a 3D maze and you're trying to find your way to a goal location it's not with the
1: apples this is the one with the apples, exactly.
0: And the apples are there as sort of exploration bonuses. You know, you haven't found the, the goal yet, but you found an apple, and yeah. that's worth one point. And when you actually find the goal, you get 10 points, and then you get teleported somewhere else, and you need to try to find your way back through this maze. And again, it's, a, it's not a hard problem if you could look at the whole thing at once, but you can't. You have to take just a little bit of information in at a time and turn that into sort of an internal model, right? An internal map. Hmm. There's classical approaches to this that involve building an actual map, right, in the computer program. Um, Things like SLAM, which is simultaneous localization and mapping. We're interested in how you would do this if you can't write down a map. Mm -hmm. You just have to use that same neural network to somehow store the information and understand this spatial organization of the world and then use that internal representation to then play on a path to the goal and, and get better and better at that, that
1: task. It's funny, when you boil down video games to their most yeah. like fundamental yeah. rules, I feel like I spent a lot yeah. of my youth yeah. being that little agent. Finding, finding <laughs> the apple. Finding the apple and feeling really proud of myself. That's true. So you've got on a problem, and you've got on a computer. How do you teach one to solve the other? Ryan knows all about the challenges we face in the ever-developing world of machine learning. And if you'd like to learn more as well, Brilliant.org is a great place to start.
2: Brilliant.org is a website and app which teaches you science from the ground up by setting daily challenges and then explaining the science behind them.
1: Every day they publish challenges that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science.
2: Each problem provides you with the skills and framework you need to tackle it, so you learn the concepts by applying them. There are quizzes if you want to learn more and a community of fellow problem solvers if you get stuck.
1: And Brilliant.org have a course on machine learning. I really think I should take that actually. (laughs) So if you'd like to learn more about today's topic, there's a course that's perfect for you.
2: And here's something else to help your knowledge evolve we've put a link to brilliant.org in the episode notes for this podcast and the first 200 people to sign up through that link will get 20 percent off their premium plan i just wanted to ask about neural networks sort of as a, as a concept i guess and their sort of relationship to actual neurons are they designed to look like brains because brains are the most efficient or the only way of processing information or is it is it just that when we think of a neural network, it's just that the brain is what we're trying to simulate and they don't necessarily look the same. Is there any sort of connection there?
0: We take a lot of inspiration from neuroscience. The human brain and other nervous systems in the biological world are the only examples that we have of an artificial general intelligence. So we take that inspiration, but we want to make it very efficient to run on modern computers which means that it looks different. So there are people that study very realistic neural networks where each neuron is a spiking neural network and there's um, you know the equivalent of uh, neurotransmitters and the, the, different sorts of chemicals and things like this. We don't try to get to that level of fidelity. This is more of an abstraction of the processing that we think happens roughly in the brain.
1: I almost think there's so much confusion within neuroscience. You never speak to a neuroscientist who tends to be that confident that we know you know there's so much more to learn in neuroscience itself it would almost be difficult to design AI with neuroscience as the start point because it's not like you've fully mapped the human brain and now it's time to start emulating it it's like We don't understand either fully yet, right?
0: Neuroscientists are so amazingly conservative about making any claims at all. They really are. Uh, They don't like to put anything down concretely, Um, and I guess with good reason. The brain is is very complex, and we have to look at it. Through neuroscientists have to look at it through these different mechanisms of, you know, the psychophysics of doing tests on how people, you know, see things and and where do they look and different sorts of things. Or looking at people with very that have had um, some injury to their brain and what can we infer about things that way. Or looking, of course, at the actual brains of, of rats and mice. But even there, they're looking at small populations of neurons. They're not getting sort of the whole picture of what's going on.
1: Is there any potential to do work the other way around? So is there research that focuses on how what you presumably can create in an artificial intelligence kind of neural network that could be applied to the brain in, in areas where neuroscientists don't quite know what's going on?
0: Well, we're just starting to have research that can feed back, I think. I've done work in navigation with representations that look like grid cells, which exist in the brain and the, um, for navigation in rodents seeing things that look just like grid cells and act like grid cells inside of the neural networks that we were training. And so if we train them in a particular way, that's in some ways similar to how a a mouse learns to navigate around the world. So that was a paper that we published in Nature year before last, and the neuroscience community was really excited about, about this result, I think, because it gave some external validation of different hypotheses that they had, and also, it did open up new avenues for exploration, new avenues for, for research.
1: When I was looking at your um, TEDx uh, Exeter <laughs> talk, actually, I had another thought about how potentially we could learn from AI as, as opposed to the other way around. You showed that clip of, and we'll put this on the blog so people know what I'm talking about, there's a really hilarious clip of a sort of artificial intelligence agent. I don't know if we defined agent, but the agent is essentially the, the AI's kind of manifestation within this video game world. I
0: mean, it's that neural network that produces actions, and we call it the agent because it has autonomy. It's not just a program. It has autonomy. It makes decisions, and so agent is the common way that's referred to.
1: So, yeah, you showed this clip of this agent which was controlling a humanoid figure. It looks like a man who is moving in the most (laughs) hilarious and bizarre way, kind of using its arms to stabilize its movement. I think the purpose of the AI was to... See, see if it could learn how to use a human body, and like yeah, how it could learn sort of normal gait, and and move through an environment using all the same human joints. Because right. uh, obviously the body is extremely complex. Now that looked kind of ridiculous, but as you say in your talk, it comes from a place of efficiency. So it's waving its arms about like crazy to kind of stabilize its body. Right. But actually, is it possible that? you know we as humans are the ones who actually aren't moving as optimally as as we could if if sports people were moving at like full efficiency is it possible they'd be moving like that
0: (laughs) well the agent moves that way because that's all it has ever needed to do Mm -hmm. is to run through these obstacle courses that we've created in this little simulated environment and that's not a lot of variety compared with what we have to do plus that's not a real Human body by any stretch—it's a gross simplification. Twenty-three with joints, or and so it's it? not particularly trying to conserve energy. For instance, it can use as much energy as we want. We're not going to throw out our arms with each step we take because we don't need to in order to maintain balance. And people would laugh at us. <laughs> These are powerful motivations. It's such a funny <laughs> thing um, So we, you know, even a professional sports player they're still going to do a lot of other things with their, with their body. And so that sort of acts to regularize how, how their actions are, um, etc. But y- you do see that people who are incredibly good at a sport will optimize to the point of where it becomes something that's quite extreme.
1: I would think that probably, like to some extent, AI research would, well, you'll know better than me, but would play into those you know, very high-level sports people, surely part of the research that goes into deciding how Usain Bolt should like launch himself <laughs> off the start block you know is, is there potential for the use of AI in that kind of field
0: well I think that our models of the human body would need to get much much closer to the actual human body and the constraints that that, that we have before okay. um, because right now this is just con- you know there's no penalty for overextending um your joints or things like that. Sure. There's not damage, there's not pain, and there's not energy conservation. But if we took this to a point where the models that the agent were controlling were a lot closer to real human bodies, then maybe. I mean in the case of AlphaGo, then the games that have been played by by AlphaGo have really inspired the you know go professionals mm. and the same thing in in chess people look at these games and they say ah here is a you know, this super intelligent player that is managing to be creative and do different moves that we we never thought about. Um, And that's been sort of some of the excitement over that line of research.
1: So what are the kind of key areas that we're seeing AI applied in then, if if in our normal lives, our
0: day-to-day lives? It all depends on how you define AI. I think that even my refrigerator claims that it's AI. (laughs) Built for AI. Mine definitely Um, (laughs) does. I think that more realistically, I think that anything that involves media, we're seeing a change very quickly in terms of understanding photographs, understanding video, coming yeah. up with you know, something that will summarize your video for you, and, you know, give you a running caption of what's happening in a video, for instance. And those are things that we definitely could not do before we had neural, very large neural networks that could learn to solve these important tasks like captioning (laughs) uh, your videos. In sort of more serious cases, then we're starting to see changes in the medical world in terms of being able to automatically analyze um, and interpret medical scans. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is really important for places where there are only... A few doctors in the field or in areas of the world where those doctors are not not very available or simply to come up with an initial assessment of, of a condition
1: doctors must have such massive fatigue if they're under those huge workloads <laughs> looking at like mri scan after mri scan if you could have a, a machine that had learned to spot the early signs of like a cloud on the lung or a tumor in the brain right. you could kind of have that first sifting stage where we, we talked to sue black about it didn't we now i think about it we had a really interesting <laughs> chat with a, a forensic anthropologist in episode five of the podcast mm-hmm. where she talked about how police have to examine yes. really horrendous footage a lot of like these awful crimes mm-hmm. but they're hoping to develop software that can spot clues that might lead to identification of a, a suspect and an AI could do the kind of trawling stage, looking through that kind of quite disturbing footage, and then you could bring in a person to validate what the AI spots. A lot of knowledge and a lot of expertise, yours included, goes into kind of creating these machines that can learn extremely efficiently. Can some of that learning in how to create a very efficient teaching method, can that be put into practice in the non-AI sphere? So as far as kind of just teaching goes, for example, Do you think lessons learned from the world of like programming these deep neural networks can be put into use in the world of teaching?
0: You know there's been so many people that have thought about things in this direction in terms of individualizing or personalizing education per student because all students are going to learn differently and having sort of a, a curated curriculum for each individual student could be really valuable. I think that that's certainly possible. I also think that the role of human teachers is is very, very important. Mm. I mean, you say that AIs can learn more efficiently, but that's not really true. They're actually quite inefficient learners in some ways, but they can learn in very focused ways on a lot of data, and they don't need to sleep or eat, right? (laughs) Um, But humans are much better at learning um, and more efficient at Um, learning a curriculum of knowledge, going through a math course, and learning the fundamentals, and then applying those, and then learning more things, and learning tools, and putting it all together. We don't have machines that can learn in that way.
1: What I like about reading about um, machine learning research is that you boil down what teaching, and learning, and task solving is to its most sort of fundamental components. And it's I mean, it's actually testament to how you are on this podcast. You're very good at explaining things very clearly. We, not not everyone has that ability, <laughs> um, and it's something that like I feel there's something in that that could be like used in training of teachers, for example. Mm-hmm. You know that that sort of like what is knowledge, what is the most effective way to convey a concept or help someone complete a task. But I suppose it's a very that's wishy-washy question. Yeah. <laughs> idea.
0: No, I think it's I think it's a great idea. I, I can't think of anything that uses that premise but i don't see why it shouldn't hold in in some cases there could be something there that's that's quite interesting delete from the podcast this is is a business opportunity
1: (laughs) Um, and and this actually leads on to my next question which is do you find yourself as you are you know your day-to-day job is all about kind of teaching machines how to perform tasks so do you find yourself when you're like you know, teaching your children, do, do you find yourself being excessively efficient?
0: <laughs> All right, well, their nickname for me is Robo Mums. <laughs> so, um, but I think that's more about that I manage a, a team at DeepMind, and if I come home and probably there's many managers out there in other fields that also when they come home to their families, they have to take off the manager hat and, and put on the, the, the parent hat. I don't know. I Sometimes we certainly have very interesting discussions at home about, for instance, the ways in which my agents will cheat when I try to teach them a problem. Mm,
1: find the most like easy way of doing the task, you mean?
0: Exactly. Right, okay. So we were trying to teach an agent to navigate through the streets of New York. Mm-hmm. And if you've been to New York, you may have noticed that almost every street is a, uh, is a one-way street. Mm-hmm. Some avenues that go both ways, but for the most part... They are one-way streets. And this was using Street View. If you know what Google Street View is, I'm mm-hmm. sure so that you've used it. So you get sort of this first-person view of the world as if you're down on the street. So we trained an agent with this view of the world to follow directions. So we would feed in the text in- instruction, turn left, turn right, go straight, these sorts of simple directions, and hope that it learned how to interpret that that language and turn either way. And It did really well on the task. Then we discovered that it was cheating. Can you guess how it was cheating? (laughs) (laughs) going
2: down the wrong way, down one-way streets maybe?
1: Well,
0: we were telling it to follow directions that we got from Google Maps. And Google Maps knows that you're not supposed to turn the wrong way on a one-way street. So basically, the agent, rather than interpreting the text instruction, the, the language instructions, it just, when it got to the next intersection, it would go whichever way the traffic was going.
3: Uh, it just played follow the leader.
0: <laughs> and in fact, if by mistake it went the wrong direction and it had traffic coming at it. Then it would say, "Oops," and it would turn around really quickly. Doesn't <laughs> work way. as a human
3: driver, does it?
0: <laughs> Which we figured out when we finally tried to debug what was going on with this agent, and we gave it directions that were specifically going against traffic on one-way streets, and it wouldn't do it. <laughs> right, okay. I'm not sure if that's really smart or really stupid.
1: <laughs> I read about a similar one recently with um, the huskies. There was a an AI designed to spot. It, it was fed lots of images of, of husky dogs and yeah. then it was like put to work identifying huskies versus wolves, I think it was. Okay. It was right most of the time, except on this one image. They were looking at this image and they were like, why, why could it not work out this one? And it was because there was snow in the background of the shot. And it had basically, rather than learning a lot of its rules from like the cues in the face facial structure of a husky versus a wolf yep. it just noticed that a lot of huskies have snow in the background <laughs> yeah. so this one wolf they had with snow in the background the ai had been like that's a husky <laughs> and the humans were like nope you've no, learned you, the simplest you, you rule there efficient but not I, correct <laughs> so it's almost about how you do it, it kind of finds flaws in the way you've defined the task almost exactly. doesn't it it's super exactly. clever it, it works out like how a, to get around your clever lack of clarity <laughs> yeah like a clever yeah. child exactly
0: well i think it comes from having multiple objectives if you give these really sparse reward functions where i'm just going to give you a point if you do exactly this then there's lots of different ways to interpret that you know even just saying tell me when you see a husky tell me when you see a wolf we know what those words mean but and a a machine a program that's just looking at images is going to say well i'm just going to look at the statistics of this and try to try to sort it out unless you tell me something else uh, about it
2: goes back to the abstract knowledge that people have, right? I was going to ask if you ever like end up anthropomorphizing your agents. Do you get like <laughs> particularly attached to individual ones, or is there even individual agents?
0: I once did an interview with a master student who was studying artificial intelligence and came from my the college that I went to, I said that I would do an interview with her. And the first question she asked me is, What is the name of your AI? <laughs> this is not a question that I had been asked before. Oh, what is the name of your AI and is it female or male? It's like, All right. <laughs> we really do not understand each other. Got to right? name it how. Yeah.
1: You yeah, like yeah it, right? um, <laughs> Um, well,
0: I, I, I would say that we do, you see a lot of behaviors. One of the most interesting things is understanding how are these agents solving these different problems? What are the strategies that they have? What are they seeing that I'm maybe not seeing? What are the ways in which they are finding tricks? And what sorts of interesting behaviors emerge? How does an agent use a neural network as a memory bank? To solve a navigation task, things like this and sometimes we're mistaken we think oh this agent is really small smart it's really solved the problem and it hasn't and we find that out through doing careful analysis additional experiments uh, uh, ablations of experiments things like this in order to really get it what is what is happening
1: i suppose otherwise yeah. you got that sort of confirmation bias thing going on don't you, absolutely. you start to...
0: absolutely we still have to be good scientists and i guess
2: like any you probably naming it probably isn't a good good idea (laughs) how much of your so you know codes do do you share a lot of it or is there stuff that you you know the stuff that's sort of proprietary you want to keep to yourself
0: yeah it's when we develop things when we write code in google then it's hard not to use a lot of different google tools that are proprietary Mm -hmm. so for us open sourcing is harder than if you're in an academic department and everything that you're using is already open source But we open source things that we see that there's a lot of value to. We try to we try to make libraries public. We try to make environments public. So the street view-based environment that I mentioned for navigating, that's an open source environment that we've made public.
1: Because this must make progress so fast. When it's computers and code, you could presumably have everyone across the world literally publishing exactly what they did to the point that someone else could pick it up and run with it.
0: And that's also a good way to reproduce <laughs> bugs and have those. So if if I have results on my code and then I publish my code and you run that code and you get the same result, all it shows is that we ran the same code. Uh-huh. It doesn't mean that the underlying algorithm is, for instance, bug-free, that there aren't issues with it. But is that
1: it. not what the review process is for?
0: Well. Yes, but there can be things, there's two different things that you want to do. You want to open your code so that people can build on it quickly, um, so that as a community we're sort of uh, growing, scaling, but you also want other labs to try to reproduce because you can get a lot of information out of that. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. When, that by having that, that disagreement between results when you thought that you had the same implementation, yeah. you learn from that. You do. It's frustrating.
1: Exactly, but, that's but, it. But we learn
0: from that. So there's two different things there that are not always. It's
1: not like one is, is purely better than the other. I see what you're saying.
0: Yeah, usually we find that if we publish a paper that the community is excited about, then there will be, regardless of whether or not we put code out there, there will be an implementation of it on GitHub in a matter of, of weeks. And sometimes that would be a better implementation that will, than what we have. Previously. I don't
1: actually know what Git, GitHub is.
0: GitHub is just share. a big repository of code. Ah, right, just, okay. you can have count you can contribute to projects with a thousand different coders contributing to them, um, or just have your own individual code up there, but it's just a way to, to share code.
1: Sure. Now you say at the start of your TEDx talk that we're actually quite a long way from producing human level Intelligence at the stage we're at, which is it's good to see people being <laughs> honest as opposed to like headline-worthy stuff. But I mean, how? What? What are the kind of major obstacles do you think at this stage to producing that human-level intelligence? If we're looking at the long game over the next, I don't know. Well, first of all, how many years do you think it will be? Or is that is that even I'm not is,
0: going to answer? What <laughs> <one? laughs>
2: well, is that even a desirable thing to do?
0: Right. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not we're trying to make tools to solve problems that humans can't solve, or whether we're trying to replicate human intelligence. And I tend to think we are trying to, it's the former, not the latter. We're trying to develop AI as a general problem-solving approach so that then we can push it into the problem of um, modeling the climate, give it lots of data, let it chew on that data for a long time, and then come out with a better model than we can with other methods. Same thing for a disease, lots of data on this disease, but no real understanding of it. Um, Let's see if this approach will help. But on the way, we're inspired a lot by human intelligence, so we use that. There are a lot of obstacles to getting anywhere close to human intelligence. Humans are uh, amazingly powerful computing machines, that have long-term memory, have mm-hmm. language, have abstractions, have concepts, have a lot of things that we have not yet come close to cracking. Yes, i more think yes. about mouse level, you know. <laughs> mouse level AI is something that we can- Well, that's interesting. <laughs> I wrote down towards.
1: next to one of the, the answers you were saying earlier, I, I wrote uh, animal modeling because obviously in the world of biomedical, it's kind of, <laughs> animal research is not the most desirable way of doing things, but it's the, the best way we can make rapid advancements in medicine but everyone always says ah one day maybe you could simulate a mouse and all of these kind of like early stage you know experiments that lead to clinical trials could be done on on an AI but generally even when I ask people about that the feeling is that we're a long way off mouse level AI. I
0: agree, I agree. agree.
1: So we hear a lot about the success stories of AI, what sorts of challenges do you think AI is the least suited to addressing? So where where does that human abstract high level concept thinking make it really difficult to apply AI?
0: Right. I see that when we get to humans that are uh, making decisions where they're taking in lots of abstract vague, maybe inconsistent information, and trying to come up with a, say, a policy. It's not a black or white decision, but they're trying to come up with something more nuanced. And this sort of accumulation of information. So I'm thinking about what a politician does, oddly enough, right? A politician looks at these different populations, these different groups, and tries to come up with consensus, tries to build consensus in terms of producing legislation or Uh, or something. And that sort of bringing together all of these different types of information. They might have individual information from meeting with individual people that they know by name. Then they've got statistics over many people. Uh, They've got sort of groups that they have worked with um, and they have their own background, their own history. And they need to somehow bring that together and then produce a convincing argument Mm -hmm. right, Uh, and build consensus with other people. And that's the sort of complex human-focused, very rich uh, sort of thinking and, and behavior that would be I wouldn't have any clue where to start I think that that were a very very long way from.
1: It's almost like the government as a whole works as a giant <laughs> yeah. neural network in that respect. But you can
0: think about this at individual it's levels too. Things that we do that involve a lot of, of, of person interaction and a lot of bringing together uncertain information and then trying to come up with something that's not just a black and white decision but is more of a and I'm going to now behave in this way.
1: Yes uh, yeah it's hard to do it's a very complex victory condition that one isn't it yeah. exactly exactly if you did have the time we can ask about the forgetting. Cat- i was worried yes. that would be something you'd be like damn that's a half hour of stuff i need to talk about there it's your choice i can no, ask that question so, all right
0: so sometimes people will ask me because i'll say well i have research in navigation and in robotics and in these different areas including continual learning and they'll say well what's the most important thing to solve and i actually tend to say continual learning this is the problem of learning across a lifetime of experience having the knowledge grow over time we start out as a baby we learn about many many different things we end as somebody who has hopefully wisdom and um, a lot of uh, capabilities and that's very very far away from what we can do right now with neural networks which still tends to involve take a big data set sample from that data set and learn from it. that process of learning sort of all at once from a data set is completely different to how we learn. Yeah. We read a book from beginning to end. We don't sample random pages until we, <laughs> until we know the whole thing. So not only is continual learning something that's hard for neural networks and for AI systems in general, but I think that it's it's absolutely critical that we be able to learn in stages and be able to to grow uh, the knowledge and the capabilities of, of, of a system. If we could do that, we could solve, begin to solve other problems because then we could craft the curriculum, we could craft the school that would educate that AI to start with small problems and then grow towards larger problems.
1: Why can't computers hold that information? Why do computers forget?
0: Well, it's, it's called catastrophic forgetting. And what we see is just that uh, learning tends to involve changing just a little bit every neuron. Say you've got a million neurons in a network and I learn one thing and then I want to learn a second thing after that and that learning process changes just a little bit every neuron in that network and so when you do that you end up not being able to do the first task anymore. Right. And neuroscientists you know, know that humans and animals do a much better job of solving this problem they do things like reduce the plasticity of different parts of the, the brain so that w- learning one thing doesn't wash out another thing. Yeah. Um, so we have algorithms that we've developed that are take some inspiration from that process, reducing plasticity um, after you've learned something so that you sort of consul- uh, fix it in place. But they don't come anywhere close to the type of, of abilities that humans show.
2: And it's called catastrophic because it means that it's... Everything's,
1: yeah. everything's because gone. you really
0: <laughs> drop off a cliff because yeah. if you're still trying to say how well are you still doing on this first task that you learned as you're learning the second one then you then just very quickly fall off go. a cliff and, and it's, just it's cannot even interpret the the game anymore or the task or whatever it is it's, it's funny. very different from how from what humans do
1: all of this stuff does make me kind of marvel at people at the end of it all it's like just then talking about the way humans remember stuff i remember from like you know you remember weird things from your childhood and you certain skills seem to stick that come into play at later times and yeah
0: exactly that's the other side of it you don't want to catastrophically forget the things that you (laughs) learn you actually want to be able to transfer it forward right to be able to take skill a and skill b and put it together to solve a new problem right (laughs) And, and we also have, have a hard time developing networks that can do that as fluently. That was
1: amazing, thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank been you. It's been absolutely brilliant. We had to, there were a few questions at the end there that I, I could have kept on chatting, but I, you have a job. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The, the pipe glass there, that's yours. Uh, that's brand new, oh, fresh, cool. um, <laughs> 2019, so you can that's take cool. that back and stick it in the middle of the mind offices. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is made possible by Brilliant.org, a great resource if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them.
2: Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, makes learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science.
1: And Brilliant.org have a course on machine learning. So if you'd like to learn more about today's topic, there's a course that's perfect for you. You're bound to love it, especially since using the link in the podcast description will get the first 200 users 20% off their premium plan. That concludes the final episode of the Pint of Science podcast and we'd like to now introduce you to someone very special who's had
2: made the podcast what he's is. kind of made the podcast <laughs> yeah.
1: It's exactly yeah he's, he's played a big role
3: so introducing our producer sam datton oh you guys <laughs> you guys sam is i was going to jump in sooner but then you had more nice things to say uh, uh, to stop uh,
1: making you feel uncomfortable with compliments let's instead move on to thanking someone who's now gone which yes. is of course raya hadsel she had a lot of good
2: stuff to yeah, say yeah that was really incredibly interesting and basically the same as every episode we could have carried on talking for so much longer exactly Especially in terms of AI, is going to be something that's going to change the world in probably unimaginable ways. It's interesting
1: to know that someone working at very senior levels of AI research isn't actually at all taken by that
3: by sci-fi of course, side of it. But so unbelievably able to communicate it to three people who yeah. know absolutely nothing. No offence, guys. No, no, right. no, 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 right. no, no. I'm projecting <laughs> The three guys who know absolutely nothing about it. I mean, here's someone who's right in the core of it. Yeah. and was able to just explain, okay, well, this is what we're doing and this is why mm-hmm. we're doing it and made it so accessible. Yeah. And that is science communication in a nutshell there. Yeah. So, um, so if you're listening back to this, Ryan, I hope you're blushing. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot she yeah, will yeah. listening
2: back <laughs> And I do feel thoroughly, like, de-sci-fied. Every time I watch CSI now, I'm going to be like, bullshit, bullshit, <laughs> <laughs> bullshit.
3: bullshit. Oh, okay. <laughs> As opposed to before today, where going, I was convinced well, that that it was 100 <laughs> Episode 5 should have hammered that one in <laughs> Yeah.
2: <laughs> Every time they say enhance, totally legit. Uh,
1: Another big thank you is, of course, due to the pub that we are currently sat in, the Lincoln Lounge, which is probably the most atmospheric-looking pub we've been in since back in... They're now i actually about to offend every other pub yeah, really. yeah, I yeah, won't say yeah. it that we, way I'll we, we phrase it differently we're say it's up there in the league tables of beautiful pubs we've been in this is I would say near the top of the league automatic promotion territory like Sheffield United Anyway, thanks very much for hosting us for the podcast so I mean I just wanted to quickly probably from a purely selfish perspective but revisit some of the highlights of this series as it is the end of the series so yeah I mean at the very start of this podcast I said we've been on the search for some of the best researchers in the UK and some of the loveliest pubs, and we have been successful on both counts. If we just hark back to that very first episode with Steve Hake, In episode one, we learnt about the science behind Olympic gold medals.
2: In episode two, we learned about the neuroscience of love.
3: Episode three, how to build your own rift basin in a kitchen. Oh, that was
2: a good
1: one. I really (laughs) enjoyed learning
3: that. Not tried it yet,
2: though.
1: Episode four, theories as to what killed off those pesky dinosaurs.
2: To my utmost regret, I know, I know. Sorry, Uh, too soon. (laughs) Uh, in episode uh, five, episode five, uh, we learnt the ways that we can learn about life from the bodies of the dead. We did, yes, with Sue Black.
3: Episode six: How Neanderthals smell—a question we ask ourselves <laughs> every day. <laughs> episode seven, of course, uh,
1: we learnt about the unusual and, frankly, slightly disgusting world of fecal transplants.
2: In episode 8, we learned about all the energy sources of the future.
3: Episode 9, as if we didn't know them already, but the simple (laughs) rules of physics that govern all of life and existence. And we've enjoyed them
1: all over some delicious pints.
2: Yeah, it's been pretty, pretty pinty. It's
1: been a special special podcast, guys. Now, if you haven't already heard all these episodes, the first thing I would say is go back, start episode 1, start listening. As you go through them, I would like you to tell everyone you know at the end of each episode, go out there, use the hashtag... PintCast19 on your social media. Tell your friends and family who you just know love Pint of Science already, that the podcast offers another way to access that fantastic sciencey knowledge and goodness. Also, of course, as we discussed at the start, we are now on day one of the festival. Yeah. So if you haven't got any plans for this evening, tomorrow evening, or Wednesday evening, get yourself down to your local, well, get on partnerscience.co.uk and just double-check when <laughs> we're in your city first. <laughs> we almost certainly will be, though. Get yourself down to an event, and you can experience what we get to experience on this podcast for yourself, being in the pub with great researchers. And great
3: beer. And great beer, exactly. Yeah, that's about the that's last. That's it for, for 2019. Oh, Yeah. If you want to make memories more permanent, by the way, here's an idea which will help you sell the podcast to your friends as well. Get yourself a cheap white T-shirt and a sharpie. Other permanent markers are available. Just write down your favourite thing about every episode on a T-shirt. On a (laughs) T-shirt. On a T-shirt. On a T-shirt. On a (laughs) T-shirt. On a T-shirt. I I cannot stress enough. Do not write a sharpie on a (laughs) T-shirt. Miss, hold still. Rift basin in a kitchen Just on your forehead No, on a t-shirt Wear it out in public Show all your friends You don't, you don't even need to talk to them yeah, yeah.
1: This is why he's good I bet you're yeah. wishing You're thinking yeah. now aren't you? Why couldn't he have been presenting All oh, the yeah. other episodes of the podcast Okay, thank you very much Planet of Science podcast fans Planet of Science fans It's been an absolute it, joy To be with you It's been wonderful And we'll see you For series two